0: That he works with great might, that he works in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand
1: in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and dominion, and
0: above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one that is to come. And he was, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Great. Thanks very much for. Reading first, Jeff. And I want to suggest as we start this lunchtime that we are all attracted to people in power. Uh, Think about the work situation that you're in. Think about that senior leader or that boss who has all the influence. And knowing him or her will give you opportunities and secure your future prospects. Or think about this from a geopolitical level. Uh, the country that pulls the purse strings of the global economy, lining up behind that country secures the future economic prosperity of the nation. And so it's, it's sensible uh, to, uh, to line up ourselves behind people who have power because they have the ability to secure our future. And so the question is, who holds the power? Well, if you you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, and we think about this from a perspective of religion, it doesn't look like Christianity has much, or if any, power. I think in our society today, secularism or just general secular society seems dominant. And so who, who holds the power? Well, perhaps you've been to chapel or to Sunday school when you were growing up and you, you know the answer. Uh, it's it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds the power. But if we, we know the answer, uh, why does it not feel like it? Uh, why do we still fear? Why are we still discouraged? So there are two questions that we are going to consider this lunchtime. Um, Firstly, who holds the power? And secondly, if as a Christian we say Jesus, uh, why does it not feel like it? Um, If you've been joining us for our talk in Ephesians so far, um, we've been exploring the situation in the Ephesus church. And we have been considering um, how the church was responding to the situation with Paul. And this week, we step into Aquila, Aquila's shoes. Aquila, he is a member of the Ephesus Church. He's a tent maker by trade. And when he takes his daily walk to the marketplace, um, he walks by the great temple of Artemis, uh, this huge imposing structure where throngs of people across the Mediterranean come to visit and to pay homage. And the the news about Paul in, in prison um, has already started to spread around the city of Ephesus. And you see, Paul was, was a really well-known person in Ephesus. Uh, people didn't really like him. He, he caused a riot in Ephesus, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. And he started a sect called Christians, a people who followed this man called Jesus And now Paul, as we've been thinking about over the past couple of weeks, he is in prison. And you can imagine as Aquila, he is taking his morning walk to the marketplace. Uh, You see people who have heard about Paul whispering behind his back. Uh, You see them laughing in his face. You see them mocking him. Well, who, who holds the power? Uh, Aquila would say, Jesus, but but really, does he? And and why does it not feel like it? And the situation that we've been thinking of, and that's the thing that Paul writes to them. And in our passage today, he prays for them. I mentioned about two weeks ago um, that one Bible handling tip is to always look at The prayers. Prayers are important. Writing out your prayers is laying bare what you want most from your reader. It exposes your heart desire, your biggest burden, your pastoral concern for the reader. So always try to understand the prayers carefully whenever you read any epistle in the Bible. And the first thing to know um, for... For today, and the first point that we have is that Paul prayers for for knowledge. Now look down to verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may
1: know you see Paul he he prays for
0: knowledge but what kind of knowledge is Paul praying for and there's a real surprise in in what exactly he prays for them uh, Paul there he is praying that they may know something that they already know uh, we'll see this in a bit more detail but look at verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Uh, I want to suggest that the hope that refers to heaven or the new creation. And let me ask um, would you know about heaven if you are a Christian? Uh, well, I want to suggest, of course, uh, if you are a Christian, by definition, you would know about heaven, uh, the new creation. But yet, you see, Paul, he, he prays that they may. No. So what kind of knowledge is Paul praying for? Uh, it cannot simply be head knowledge. I'd rather, here Paul, he is praying for heart knowledge, a knowledge that hits the core your identity. And look at verse 17. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Uh, The first thing to know is God must, must give this knowledge, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And the next thing is, you see how Paul describes it, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Uh, It's a really strange way to describe um, uh, having eyes on your heart. Paul seems to be mixing his organs up in a way in which uh, physiologists would disapprove. But you see, the Bible describes the the heart as the control center of your being, uh, your core, your identity, where your desires come from. And in the Bible, it describes your heart being able to be hardened or to be darken or enlighten. And the the fact that your eyes can be darkened or enlightened, uh, Paul, he he tags eyes to your heart. So what kind of knowledge is Paul praying for? It's a God-given heart knowledge, knowledge which is embedded deep in us that reaches our core, affects our heart, our control system, our being that flows out into our actions.
1: Not just to know, uh, but to
0: really know. And and how significant is is this hard knowledge? Um, Over the, the past week, I was listening to a talk from Isaiah, and I was really struck about the judgment that Israel received from God. They had darkened hearts and it's a terrible judgment. Um, I, um, Israel, they heard but did not understand. They saw but did not perceive. Uh, their hearts, they were dull. They were hardened. They were darkened. Uh, think about the, the Pharisees in, in the Gospels as you read about them. They, they knew. They knew the law but they didn't really know uh, they knew in their heads but not in their hearts and what about us i mean it's a scary thought that you could listen to years and years of people teaching the bible to you but not understand or you could read pages and pages of bible passages but not comprehend so it's it's a really scary thought and uh, we we need that heart knowledge. And so Paul uh, in our passage today he he prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Uh, one quick observation as we as we move before we move on, uh, Paul here in our passage, he's not primarily teaching his readers how to pray. Um, it's not really a lesson on how to pray but we certainly can glean some insights into how he does pray. Uh, So let me ask, how do we often pray whenever we are in a difficult circumstance? I'll suggest, or at least for myself, I often pray for the circumstance itself, uh, that job or that relationship or that health condition or the decision that you have to make. But you see here, Paul, he, he prays for knowledge for his readers to know something more deeply uh, into their hearts and it's not to say that paul only prays for knowledge and all his other prayers but it's worth a thought um what do you pray about when you are in a difficult circumstance uh, why not pray to know something about god better um, I, I found this helpful over the past week um, it shaped my prayers a bit. Um, rather than just praying about the situation, I prayed about knowing an aspect of God better. And so Paul prays for knowledge, and that's, that's point one. But what is the content of that knowledge? What is he praying that they might know? And that's where we come to point two. That they may know the resurrection power. Uh, theoretically, in our passage, there are three aspects of what he's praying for. but I want to suggest that the third is the climax of his prayer. I look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. The hope, the riches, and the power. What do each of them mean? The hope I I mentioned earlier, uh, that refers to the hope of the future inheritance, land in the new creation, or heaven. And that's a a key idea in the New Testament. A lot of a Christian's assurance is based on a future, secure hope, despite your present situation. Imagine with me: a lawyer calls you up, and your great-great-grandmother, Monica, has uh, has left you a vast inheritance. It's that ten-bedroom mansion that we talked about last week in Surrey, the real estate amounting to a hundred million pounds or fifty million pounds in liquid assets, and you are to receive all those things next month. Uh, Leading up to that, um, over the next week, you you lose your job. Um, The the stock market crashes again. Your portfolio of 200,000 pounds, tanks. And on hearing that news, uh, you are obviously sad. You're disappointed about losing your job. But the hope of what's to come uh, next month, that inheritance, gives you assurance today. Uh, It may not change your present situation, but it gives you present day assurance. Likewise, hope for the future land and new creation uh, gives us present day assurance. And so Paul prays uh, that we may really know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance, uh, that's the next thing that Paul prays for. And this I suggest uh, the inheritance that different, differentiates from the inheritance we see in verse 11. In verse 11, we, I've described inheritance as the future land. But in verse 18 here, it is the riches of his glorious inheritance, that is God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And God's inheritance is an Old Testament reference to God's people. And so Paul wants his readers to know. How rich it is to be part of God's chosen people. Both the hope and the riches, uh, these first two that Paul is praying for, is really pointing back to to last week's passage of all the blessings they have in Christ. Uh, they are blessed with a future inheritance, blessed as the chosen ones. And Paul is praying that they may really know. But the Third aspect of this prayer, of this knowledge, I want to suggest is the climactic one and also the most complicated. Paul is praying that they know power, and uh, not just any power, it is the resurrection power. Uh, listen out to the four outcomes of the resurrection power as I read from verse 19. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I try to follow on for the next bit. It's probably a bit complex, uh, so do try to follow along. Uh, first thing to realize is that the resurrection power erased Christ from the dead. Uh, you see that in verse 20. Uh, it's the power that shook the grave and uh, that reached into the tomb and breathe new creation life into the body of Jesus and allowed him to walk this earth once again. But it did not only allow him to walk this earth, um, it raised him up. The resurrection power seated him at the Father's right hand. Now what's the significance of being seated at the Father's right hand? I want to suggest that um, there's a Really important psalm sitting behind these verses, Psalm 110. Let me put it up for you. So Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The psalm there is speaking about a future Davidic king who will sit by the Lord's right hand. And so sitting at the Lord's right hand is a position that is reserved for the future Davidic king, a one who God promised would rule over the nations and you see that being developed in verse twenty one go to verse twenty one far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to name and not only in this age but also in the one to come so the resurrection power made. Jesus, the Davidic King, seated at the Father's right hand, Uh, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And when we come to verse 22, uh, we are stepping into the new age, the new creation. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. See, on first glance, uh, putting all things under his feet Sounds really similar to having all rule and authority. But I want to suggest there's a difference there. Uh, The image of sitting at the Father's right hand, that's an allusion to the David the King, the one who will conquer and defeat the enemies. The language of putting all things under his feet, and that's the picture of a new Adam, a new Adam who walks in the new creation, someone who is remaking and restoring this will. Uh Well, Psalms 110 sat behind the previous uh, verse, I think Psalms 8 is sitting behind uh, this verse. Let me
1: share Psalms 8 with you.
0: So Psalms 8 is speaking about man and describing Adam having dominion um, and having all things under his feet. Uh, you see that that's a Paul um, verbatim pulls from Psalms 8 and uses it here to describe Jesus. I think the point that Paul is trying to make is that the first Adam in Genesis had dominion over this creation. But the resurrection power has made Jesus to be the second Adam, um, hid in the new creation, restoring the world and the new creation. Um, he is the new Adam in the new creation age to come. Um, how about the last outcome? Uh, he put all things under his feet, that's verse 22, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, that's a really tricky verse in the, uh, in the original, but two observations there. If everything is under the feet of Jesus, and we are his body, then everything is under our feet. Uh, In the new creation, in Christ, the church, Christians uh, will likewise be ruling with him. Second observation, uh, if we are the fullness of him that fills all in all, similar to Adam filling the earth, uh, the church or Christians would fill the new earth. The resurrection power made us to be part of him, uh, ruling and filling the new earth. I'm sorry, this this bit is is a little denser. So let me try to summarize uh, what I think Paul is saying here. Paul is praying that they may know true power. Uh, The resurrection power that breathed new creation life into Jesus and defeated death forever. The resurrection power that seated him at God's right hand, far above all physical rule, above the great Roman Empire during the times of Ephesians. Church, but also all physical rule today. I'm over the United States of America, uh, Russia, China, or the United Kingdom. A far above all physical rule. A far above physical rule in your offices, your CEO, your boss, your your line manager. But the Lord Jesus is far above all physical rule. But not only physical, also spiritual. He is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly. above the forces of evil, above the devil, above the great goddess Artemis during the times of the Ephesian church, but also today, far above Muhammad or the Buddha or Shiva or any sort of religion today. uh, Jesus is far above all. But not only is he above all now, he has stepped into a new world. Um, he is restoring all things. The resurrection power has made him the new Adam, um, head of the new O. And we, as his body, we will rule with him in the new creation, filling it with people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So, and this is the power that Paul is praying for us to know, uh, to deeply know the great resurrection. To have a heart, knowledge of that power. To know the resurrection power. I mean, what other power claims to give life from the dead? What other power claims to give ultimate authority? What other power restores this broken world? So, who holds
1: the power? Your your Sunday school teacher, um, he or she... Uh, she was right. Uh, it's it's Jesus. Why doesn't it feel like it? Uh, because we, we
0: need to pray. Uh, we need to pray to really know. Perhaps you, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus today. And this all might sound a little absurd. And it will. I mean, it's natural because you, you, you don't follow Jesus. But this is the Christian claim that there has been power that has resurrected Jesus and he is the king. And that is where true power is. And how about us who who do follow him? Paul, Paul, he writes that this letter um, is not meant to be a discouragement. He's not writing to us to scold us for not knowing something well enough. In fact, Paul, he really wants to encourage us today. He, he prays for us that we may see, really see, have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know what is really true. He for, for Aquila, um, uh, the, the, one of the men, uh, the tent maker who was in the Ephesus church. Uh, he knew about Paul's change and Christianity looked weak. But Paul wants to remind him uh, that he will know, really know. That it is Jesus who holds true power. And for us, um, it's true that Christianity is not certainly not the flavor of the month uh, in uh, current day society. but Paul, um, he, he prays and he wants us to know that Jesus holds true power. Um, over the past 20 minutes or so, we've been seeing the power that worked in Christ. But I want to suggest there's one more surprise in our verse. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power
1: toward us who believe? Toward
0: us. You see, over the next couple of weeks, uh, we will observe the same resurrection power that shook the grave, uh, that same power that worked in Christ at work. In us, and how does it happen? Or well, you, you need to come back next week. Uh, but for for this week, and uh, why don't uh, we pray? Uh, we pray that we would really know uh, with our hearts uh, the true
1: resurrection power. Let me pray. Father, we we pray against
0: of us seeing but not understanding. We pray against hearing but not comprehending. Father, we are fearful of the thought that we may hear your words but not understand. So we ask and we pray, as Paul prays, that you may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you may Open the eyes of our hearts. May you cause them to be enlightened so that we may know the hope that you have called us, how rich it is to be part of your glorious inheritance. And Father, I pray so much that we may know the great power that worked in Christ, the power that raised him from the grave and set him down at your right hand, Father, and him, who will rule in the new creation. Pray, Father, that we might know that great power. And so might you encourage
1: our hearts as we know that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.